It's good to be with you this morning and uh, just to continue to recognize and uh, push into our hearts a little further the goodness and the greatness of our Lord. A couple of things before we jump in uh, to the actual part of looking at God's Word this morning. One is we will be partaking of the Lord's Supper uh, towards the end of our time together. And uh, if you're unfamiliar with uh, what that means, uh, whether you should participate or not. Uh, that's the purpose of this in your bulletin. If you've got children with you, uh, we explain that as well. So I won't really do any explanation or a lot of explanation anyway uh, when we get there. And so, uh, so you might just read through that. Um, if you're wrestling with some kind of sin or something like that, all of that we've tried to capture in there of what the Scriptures call us to as we come to the Lord's table. The second thing is, is that uh, next Sunday will be a different kind of a Sunday. Uh, Now twice a year we're doing Sundays that are very intended to put uh, God's great saving work uh, on display through people's lives. And, And so next week, Dennis and Christine Cole will share some of the way God has transformed their lives. And the intention of that is, is for us to make a special effort to reach out and to invite other people. So who might we be thinking about to give this invitation to? Well, uh, Dennis is involved in public education, so anybody uh, uh, who's in public education as a student, teacher, principal, or anything like that, Uh, certainly would be true. Uh, They live in a neighborhood, so anybody that is a neighbor you should invite. Uh, They're a couple, so if you know any married couples, uh, you can be on the lookout for them and invite them. Uh, Dennis is a male, Christine is a female, (laughs) so anybody that you know of that is either male or female that would be someone you should invite. And if you have bump into people, and we probably all know people now who aren't too sure, invite them as well. Um, and we're going to talk about how God transforms life, how he literally takes caterpillars and turns them into butterflies, and the great metamorphosis that uh, the gospel of Christ and the person of Christ brings. We're also going to be uh, baptizing, having some baptisms uh, I think we've got five, six, seven, eight, nine people that are going to follow the Lord in baptism. And so let me say this, if you're one of those that's going to be baptized next week or you want to find out more about it, as soon as uh, we give the benediction, I give the benediction this morning, if you will just gather up here and uh, we want to walk through what that's going to look like and answer any questions that you might have. So if, uh, if you're going to be participating, you know you're going to be participating, or now you're just hearing about it for the first time and you're thinking, I want to be, I need to be, or I have a child that needs to be, just gather right down here, okay? Right down here at the end of the service. Well, we began on Easter looking at this great saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we've used these symbols to try to capture that. 
We began by talking about how in creation uh, we see the marvelous goodness of God in his provision and the way he designed all of creation to work together in such a bizarre unity, such an amazing unity. So there was absolutely no competition. There was no such thing of having to be survival of the fittest. Everything worked together in absolute perfect harmony. And we see that God wanted to protect that reality, and he did that by giving them a directions. You could eat of everything that's in the garden. You enjoy ruling over it. And, and in his protection, in a warning, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve, I don't want you to have to know about evil. I don't want you to have to experience what evil brings, and that is death. And so we see God provide and we see him protect uh, in the instructions that he gives and he's present in the garden. Well, we know that Satan, who had been already rebelled against God, came and to Adam and Eve uh, told them lies because he hates God and he infuses rebellion and Eve believed him And when Adam disobeyed God, he plunged the human race into sin. That's why we call it the fall. And they began to experience the mixture of death and life. They began to experience good and evil commingled. And after the fall, though, we see something else about God's love. We see that God doesn't just protect and provide in a proactive way to preserve things, he, he does that in a redemptive way. He, the one who was blown off and disobeyed and not trusted, comes after the very people who are like that and live like that. And he comes and he approaches and he calls for a confession of sin and he calls them to believe and to trust in him freshly. And we see the first sacrifice there because for him to continue to be just and yet be merciful to sinful people, sin has to be paid for. Now that's all a figure of what we come to in his giving of his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. No person could fully satisfy and pay for the debt of sin because it's against a holy God. It's an infinite debt. And so God did the craziest thing in the world, crazy as we would see it. It was the only thing that made sense according to his infinite wisdom and knowledge and was consistent with his love and justice and mercy and all that. He sent his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus became a man lived a life in perfect obedience to his father, unlike Adam, was crucified, and as he was crucified, he took upon himself and bore in himself uh, the sins for all of those who would ever believe upon him, and God poured out his wrath upon his only son. And one of the final things that Jesus says is the debt is paid in full, it is and he died. And he was raised on the third day, just completing his great saving work. And so we've talked about that. We've talked about what it means to live 
um, the rest of our lives under this great saving work of the Lord and to grow into that and to experience more of that each hour, each day, each month, each year that He gives us. This morning we come to looking at heaven and hell, the two final eternal destinations uh, for people. And nothing is more radically, extremely different than heaven and hell. And that's the loose descriptions of them. I mean, we've been capturing heaven as saying it's 100% life and absolutely no death. That's impossible to wrap our brains around. And knowing only good and hell is just the opposite. Absolutely no life. It's only death. No such thing as anything good. Only the experience of evil. Now, the beauty of this is, is the more we understand how radically different these are and how God has provided a way in Jesus to save us from hell to heaven, the more we say, wow, wow, wow. This saving work of God is more incredible than I ever imagined. And, and, uh, and so, that's the beauty of this is that Jesus saving us is not some small thing. It's the biggest thing in all of eternity. And that's what I'm trusting the Lord will do in each and every one of our hearts this morning. Now, there's three great challenges that I see in grasping these two future realities this morning. One of them is, is that there's no uh, reality that uh, we have in this world that, that is even comparable to those two places. Um, take any experience you've had, and it, and it will not compare with the experiences in hell or in heaven. And we're very clueless of this. Uh, just notice how often we use these terms very loosely. Well, that was a taste of heaven. Oh, you know, you don't understand. Or I was in Home Depot a couple weeks ago, and the cashier was having a real hard time trying to get something scanned with the person in front of us. And she said, well, I, I just apologize. This has just been a day from hell. All our computers went down, and I, was, I just thought to myself, dear lady, you are clueless. <laughs> you are clueless. And quite frankly... All of us are to some extent. Uh, even, even using our rational minds, and rationality is such a good thing, but, but rational minds can only comprehend finite things. Those are infinite experiences. Infinite experiences. The second challenge I see then is that we are absolutely dependent upon what God has revealed to us about those two places. Now, that's a good thing. Thankfully, he's told us some things, hasn't he? Uh, and, but we are absolutely dependent upon that. What's the challenge about that? The challenge about that is he has to use words that, to describe it, and the words fall so far short of what is going on. And so we're dealing with, with a huge difference in the, in the magnitude between anything we know here and what will be real there 
as well as we're dealing with words fall so far short. On the magnitude, this is what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us, that just means no afflictions wasted, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What does that mean? It means if you're going to use a cup measure to make some bread, that's the comparison of the sufferings and what they produce in this life compared to trying to measure the ocean. It's such radically different scales that you can't put them on the same chart. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And even the Apostle Paul, as he said that, when you think about the light momentary affliction that you've experienced, as I think about what I've experienced, what, what was going through the Apostle Paul's mind that he was saying is such a different scale? What, what light momentary affliction was he referring to in his life? Well, a chapter later, this is what he describes as his light momentary affliction. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 49 lashes, lest one. That's, Jesus got one of those. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in cold and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. (laughs) That's what Paul says, that's light. Now, light in what sense? Light in the sense that he thought that was light? No. Light in the sense of what and how it compares what he had in heaven. And so, it's such a different magnitude of scales. The other thing is, is that uh, we're left with often words that may very well be symbolic. Now, we're all used to symbolic things. What does this mean? Yeah, it means be careful. Be careful what? There might be a stick figure in the crosswalk? (laughs) No, be careful of what? A person. A living, breathing person that you could hurt or kill. And and so the symbol represents something less than or greater than. Much greater than. That little drawing in black and white of a stick figure represents a living, breathing person that's created in the image and likeness of God that has an eternity. Symbols represent something more real and greater than what they actually are. Here's another one for all of you who love science. (laughs) I mean, you look at CR or FE or whatever. Is that the real iron? No. It points to the real deal, though. The reality is always greater than the symbol. So we're going to read some verses And uh, there's debate on whether these are literal or they're symbols. 
Um, and, and if you take them literal, that's fine. If they're symbolic, though, recognize that it means that it's pointing to something even greater than if you took it literally. Why is that important? Well, R.C. Sproul says this, a Bible teacher and pastor. Uh, he says, if you look at the descriptions of hell, and we're going to read a couple of them here, these graphic images of eternal punishment provoke the question, should we take these descriptions literally or are they merely symbols? I suspect they are symbols, but I find no relief in that. If these, symbols are in, if these images are indeed symbols, then we must conclude that the reality is worse than the symbols suggest. And the same thing can be said about heaven. If they're symbolic, the realities of heaven are greater than the symbols. But concerning how the symbols, if they are symbolic, and, and the literal one's bad enough, but if you take them as symbolic, it is worse than that. That's the very purpose of symbols. The third challenge that we face this morning is just a time issue. There are hundreds of scriptures that address this throughout the Old and New Testament. And, uh, and we just have a few minutes. So rather than spending more time talking about how we don't have any time, let me pray, ask for God's help, and we're going to jump in and get ready. Father, we bless you and thank you that you have revealed things to us that uh, we would never uh, be able to know apart from you revealing them. Uh, these are realities that uh, are impossible to understand, let alone believe, apart from your word. Spirit of God, thank you for your perfection and your uh, ability and your desire to take the truths of the word of God and open our eyes and help us apply it to our lives. We look to you for that grand purpose today, and it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, grab a Bible or something with uh, the Scriptures on it, and if you don't have anything, grab a Bible out of the pew in front of you there, and turn over to the last book in the Bible, Revelation, Revelation chapter 21. Revelation is literally, uh, as the name suggests, a pulling back of the curtain upon things at the end of time. Uh, it's a glimpse and a description into things that are yet in our future. And it was given to the Apostle John, and then he was told to write them down. And here we are, 2,000 years later, still benefiting from them. So let me read verses uh, 1 through 8. And we're going to see, uh, this is one of the places where it describes these places, heaven and hell, as well as describing the people that are there. A very common way to describe things, right? If, uh, if you wanted to describe New York, New York, you would describe the place and you would describe the people. Same with London, England, or anything else. Well, that's what we have as a description here. So let me read verses 1 through 8, if you would, follow along, and we'll trust the Spirit to use these words. Then I saw a new heaven, that's the Apostle John, the vision that God gave him. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly, and unbelieving, and abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Two radically different places, two different kinds of people, each in their appropriate place. And so let's look first of all at this new heaven and this new earth. Now I've just tried to capture on this slide some of the dynamics, some of the things that, uh, some of the ways it describes it. A couple of these descriptions, like the tree of life, actually come out of chapter 22, verse 5. But here's what I want you to see more than anything else, because it's so easy to say, oh, no more pain, no more suffering, no more crying. That's not the big deal about heaven. The big deal about heaven is in verse 3. The big deal about heaven is, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Just in, as he was in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, and probably to an even fuller extent, God, and notice how, I mean, he says the same thing about three ways, doesn't he? Do you think he's trying to drive home a point here? In fact, he says, he himself. Nobody else. He himself will dwell in the midst of his people. He will be their God. That's the big deal about heaven. It is God himself with his people. And if you follow this throughout the, the Bible, beginning with the fall, you see this heart of God come out in hundreds of different ways. In some places, it just says that, that you might be my people and I might be your God. And finally, it's going to be absolutely perfectly fulfilled. And the, and the reality is where God is, there can't be any suffering. Where the fullness of God is, there is no death. 
All of that is obliterated by his presence. And so we see this amazing place called heaven. Who will be there? Well, look at verse, into verse 6, middle of verse 6. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. Now, we use the word inherit. We get the meaning of that, right? It's something that is gifted to us, typically by a father or mother or some relationship that we never deserve. It's just because of who our ancestors are. We'll inherit this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. A very personal, individual nature to that verse, isn't there? And so what's the picture here? Well, remember that even as this was written, and even as we read it today, there's an invitation that goes out. And of course, uh, this, this water of life, Jesus says, I am the living water. It's a reference to those who will come to Christ as their Lord and Savior and experience His saving work. Those who will get thirsty fed up with the good and evil and the death and life and will recognize their own sinfulness and they will receive the life that Christ gives them, this living water that is then manifested by being an overcomer, verse 7. It's manifested by then a life, uh, even in the midst of whatever failures there are, will end up defaulting back to looking to Jesus as the one who saves them. And their whole life is characterized by that, and that's the way it concludes. And those people that are, are described as those who inherit heaven. Inherit. It's a gift. And it's a gift based upon a relationship. God is their father. They're the sons and I think we could say daughters of God. They're the children of God. They have a right relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we often use the term around here, they're followers of Jesus, uh, because it captures those who begin to follow him because they repent and turn to Christ, and then they live a life of overcoming as they do follow Jesus. Now, compare this with the very different picture in verse 8, the lake of fire and brimstone, which is the second death, it says, at the verse, end of verse 8. Now, just the picture of fire and brimstone is pretty bad. Um, Jesus used these kinds of terms to describe this fire of brimstone in his teaching. He called it the place of outer darkness. He called it the place of eternal fire. He called it the place of eternal punishment. He called it the place of unquenchable fire. He says it is the place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So there's no cessation of existence. That's what makes this so horrible in one sense. It makes it so infinite. And notice Notice how hell is described. Notice how the lake of fire is described. Heaven was described by what? 
who's there in all of his fullness, and that's what? God. Notice how hell is described. It's noticed by people who live their lives never responding to God and the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are forever identified and living in their sinfulness. Now, those who are in heaven, notice their sin is never brought up. Never brought up. Because it's all been paid for by Christ. But who is in heaven? Here's a slide that captures it. The cowardly, the immoral persons, the unbelieving, sorcerers, abominable, liars, idolaters, murderers. Now, there's lots of ways we can try to cover that up as a lost person, but the reality is that's the identity of everybody who will not turn to Christ for salvation. And that is the way that they are described forever and ever. So we might just say this captures those who are rejectors of God, rejectors of God. Now, there's often a mistaken notion that God is not in charge of hell, that he's not present. Oh, he's present. It is his wrath against sin that is being fully exercised and poured out. A wrath that he poured out upon his only son for all those who believe in him and are in heaven. And so God is absolutely present. Some people would say, well, that sounds cruel. No. Uh, Cruelty means when the punishment doesn't match what was done. In hell, the punishment will sadly exactly match the sinfulness and the rejection of Christ and of God. And so... Two different kinds of places, two different kinds of people for all of eternity. Now, there's many places in the Bible where it talks about uh, this judgment and uh, based upon people and what they have done. Uh, even the, the beginning book in the book of Psalms talks about this, doesn't it? It says there's two kinds of people. There's those kinds of people that will refuse to hang out and listen to mockers and scoffers and will refuse to to participate with those who are living in sin. Uh, And those are the ones that are like a tree that's planted by the rivers of water. You know, they just meditate in God's Word day and night. And they're pulling up the very life of God into their life. And thus they bear fruit that is just perfectly suitable for every season of life. But the ungodly are not so. They're like the chaff that will be blown away and burnt up. John the Baptist introduced Jesus with these words. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What's the threshing floor Jesus is talking about? He's talking about this earth. And he says he's going to gather the wheat. He's going to gather those who know him and are trusting in him. He's going to gather them into the barn. What's the barn? Say heaven. Heaven. Heaven's the barn. 
And what's this burning of unquenchable fire for all the staff? It's hell. And even there's a very graphic picture in Matthew 25 where Jesus taught about and used the parallel of how a shepherd separates the goats from the sheep and how Jesus will separate those who rejected and would never trust in God or him and those who have trusted in him and the, and, the, and the goats, those who will never trust in him, will go to the place prepared for Satan and his followers. But those who have trusted in him, the sheep, they will go into everlasting life. So there's, there's several passages that talk about this judgment. What I want us to, to focus on here for a few minutes is that this judgment is a, is a very personal meeting, the scriptures describe it, as a very personal meeting between each individual and the Lord Jesus Christ as the judge. Now, there's a particular judgment that takes place for those who do know Christ, the sheep, the wheat. There is a particular judgment that takes place for them, and there is a separate judgment that takes place for those who do not know Christ. So let's look, first of all, at this personal meeting with the judge, Jesus Christ. You and I, if we know Christ, this is a meeting that is in our future. And the Scriptures talk about it in a lot of different places. Most of the places that it talks about it come in the midst of exhortations to know God and live our lives according to the Scriptures. One of the encouragements is, is... You have a day where God will reward you and commend you for your life of faith. It's not ultimately about the here and now, even as believers. Uh, it, it might help, uh, especially for you who are students, or maybe for those of you that were students or are glad you're not students anymore. <laughs> think of final exams. Luis has got a couple. Yeah, I, yeah, a couple years. Why'd you have to bring that up? I'm in church. I'm, I'm acting like they're not happening. Uh, this is the final exam. This is the final exam. This isn't a quiz. This is the final exam of life before the teacher, the Lord Jesus Christ. So they come in passages to encourage. So notice this one, for example, in Romans 14. It's in the context of, of, of the Apostle Paul saying to the believers in Rome, why do you keep judging each other on what days you celebrate and what days you don't celebrate and what food you eat and what you don't eat? He says, do you not get it? Why do you keep passing brethren? Or why do you despise your brother? Don't you get it that we will all stand before the judgment seat of God? And the judgment seat was the Bema seat. It was the place that after an athletic event, the ones who finished the race, the victors, would receive their rewards. So there's no, there's no punishment, so to speak. It's just a giving of rewards. Don't you know that we each will stand before the judgment seat of God? For it is written... As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, I don't know exactly how that's going to play out, but I get the point. Do you get the point? I mean, we always think every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord about unbelievers, and it's true about them too. But there's a day coming where we're going to get to say that. And we're going to give an account of ourselves. 
and say, men, when I, I mean the application of the Romans would be, when I got on you for celebrating or not celebrating that day of the week, Jesus is going to say, eh, no reward for that. Oh, you walked by faith and loved them in the midst of that? Oh, accommodation. Woo. All right. The Corinthian church had a few issues too, right? They're a lot like all of us. They're a lot like any church. And so this is what he says to the Corinthian church. In the midst of all their issues, and they had a lot. He says, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has done on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. What's the point? He's talking to people who have built their lives and have trusted Jesus as the foundation for their life. We're talking about followers of Jesus here. And, and Paul is saying there's a day coming where God, where God will reward those works that are the gold and the silver and the precious stone, those works that are consistent with the foundation, those works that were done by faith in God. And they're going to receive accommodation and they're going to receive some eternal rewards for that. When I act according to what Pat Cottrell thinks and not according to what the Spirit of God thinks, it's wood, hay, and stubble, and there's no eternal benefit to it whatsoever. It is burned up and gone. It could be religious things that I do to promote myself. I mean, it can be dressed up in all kinds of garb. And the thing is, Jesus knows. And so there is this reward one day. No one's going to lose their salvation. But boy, the things that were done by the Spirit and according to the Word of God, they will receive commendation. Now, the Apostle Paul, the next chapter says this about himself. He says, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. <laughs> he says, I'm not the ultimate judge of my life. I, I don't know of anything. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart then each one will receive his commendation from God. There's a day when everything that we do in private is going to come out. And the wood, hay, and the stubble will be instantly consumed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the things that were done by faith in him, they're going to receive commendation. So we might remember that Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because of what Christ has done. 
But oh, there's a day coming, final exam, when the Lord wants to commend us. And there are degrees of reward in heaven. It's very clear. Now you might say, how's that gonna work? It's a perfect heaven. Well, all the competition and all that is a result of sin. There's gonna be no sense of competition. There'll be no comparison. Comparison's a result of sin. So it'll all be part of that eternal future. And so the people who are in heaven, just to wrap that up, are people who have put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is borne out by some degree of following him all their days. And they will all have a personal time of being judged by the Christ at the Bema Seat, so that the things that they've done by faith can be commended for all of eternity. Well, what about those who do not know Christ? What about the rejectors? Go over to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20. Ay, ay, ay. Let's go quickly through this. Then I saw a great white throne, and uh, let me just tell you that these verses are going to describe this as the judgment with, where all those through history who have rejected God and rejected Christ, they will come and they will have a, a personal standing before Jesus. And it's called the great white throne, great because of its great power and uh, everything, white because it's absolutely pure and holy and just. And it is a throne because judgment will be rendered. And him who sat upon it, that would be the Lord Jesus Christ, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. In other words, nobody can hide from him. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. Death and Hades is a temporary hell until this judgment. Gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So very clearly, hell is for those whose names are not written in the book of life. How would you know whether your name is written in the book of life? Because if you get old enough to be able to, to, to understand the gospel uh, and accept it, and you accept it, your name has been written in the book of life. That's probably the simplest way to understand it. So these are people who continually rejected God and rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. But you'll notice they're judged based upon their deeds as well. There are degrees of eternal punishment for those who reject God. Now, we might, it'd be important to recognize that the least degree of punishment is more hellish than anything we can comprehend. But there are degrees of punishment as well. So, what's the conclusion of this whole shebang? This is the way, the last two verses in the book of Ecclesiastes, here's the conclusion. Don't you love it when people tell you this is the conclusion? Well, here's the conclusion. When all has been heard, it's this. Fear God 
and keep his commandments because this applies to how many people? Every person. It applies to me. It applies to each one of us. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So there's the conclusion, okay? There's the conclusion of the whole shebang. So, one of the, one of the beauties of understanding all this is it answers the so often asked question of where is God? Where was God in Toronto? When some guy decided, especially with hate towards women, to drive his van and kill people. Where is God when someone walks in and shoots people and then kills themselves? Where is the justice in that? How does he get justice? Uh, Where is the sense of justice for those of you that are in difficult marriages or relationships for your faithfulness to walk in the power of the Spirit that nobody knows about? Here it is. Here it is. At this point in history, every single person who has ever lived, whether they're in heaven or whether they're in hell, they're going to say, God is just. God is just. Nobody, including me, got away with anything. Now, the great exception of that is those who give their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, all of their sin is covered, so actually we do get away. And that's paid for. And there's no eternal consequences from that. That's the eternal consequence. For sin is in hell. So it answers that question that God is just. So how do you and I live in light of these two future realities? Um, So the question I want to ask you is, if you were to stand before Jesus today, you drop dead, you're run over today, and you have this personal time before him, the question is, where's your destination? Hell? The lake of fire and brimstone? Or heaven into the full presence of God? And if it's hell, I cannot beg you strongly enough to repent and turn to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You can mock it, you can laugh at it, but it's worse than somebody being on a 12-story building and saying, graffiti, that's a joke. I've never seen it. I'm jumping out. It's real. For those of us that know Christ and we're followers of Christ, let me just give you three quick realities and applications to our own lives. The first one is, is that understanding all this just leads to a life of gratefulness to God. And it just leads us to a life of, I want to live dependently upon you, God. It just brings us to that point. It brings us to the point of saying, heaven is a wonderful place. It's filled with glory and grace. I'm going to see 
my Savior's face. Heaven is a wonderful place. And there's a sense of gratefulness that is greater than whatever the present sufferings of this world are. And there's a, great, and there's a sense of, I want to live my faith in God. I, I'm going to have this personal meeting with Him. I want to hear commendations. Besides, I thought that's the greatest way I can be a blessing to people. And so that's why we say in all things, praising God and living our lives dependently upon Him through prayer. The second thing is, is it changes obedience to God's Word from a burden to a blessing. His commandments, John says, are not burdensome. And you're thinking, oh, right. They're not burdensome if you see this. If you see this, you say, wow, God's for me. He wants to bless me. And all of a sudden, His commandments are not a burden. They're the, they're the pathway into blessing. They're the pathway into life now and a great final exam. And so it changes all that. And there's one specific application I want to mention. And that's the application that it, that it gives us, knowing that every act will be judged, gives us the ability to forgive people no matter how they've hurt us. That application is made two or three times in the Gospels or in the letters. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Therefore, you can always overcome evil with good. It's not just releasing people, it's doing good to people. And that is a pathway of blessing, not a burden. It's not I have to forgive them. Man, God has put me in a place I can and I want to. That's the radical differences this makes. The third thing is, is that these realities give us a purpose for living greater than ourselves. It gives us a purpose for living. I, I don't just have to go to work. I'm not just going to school. I'm not just living in my neighborhood. There's a people around me that I get to tell about this and develop them to be followers of Jesus. That lasts forever. Forever. I'll be gone from my job a month and nobody will remember I was there. Although they're telling me every day, you better work harder and spend more time here. Same with school. Same with your neighborhood. Somebody else is going to buy that house, change it all around. Nobody's going to even remember you lived there. But in the midst of work, in the midst of school, in the midst of our neighborhoods, if we're developing people that follow Jesus, that matters forever. That's why we go and we develop other people to follow Jesus. Now, it's easy to forget all this stuff. It's easy. It's easy to, to get things upside down where we put them right side up this morning. That's why God has given us the Lord's Supper. Two symbols. And what's the deal with symbols? They point to something greater than they are. These two symbols represent the whole gospel. The whole gospel. For on that night that Jesus was betrayed, men, why don't you go ahead and get ready? The service, by the way. On that night that Jesus was betrayed, it says that he took bread. Common, ordinary, unleavened bread. And he says, this symbolizes my body, which was given for you.
as often as you eat this, eat it in remembrance of me. I radically saved you from that to that. And after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup represents the new covenant that was sealed by my death. A new covenant that guarantees that when you put your faith and trust in Christ, you have a reservation in heaven that's undefiled and will not fade away. It's got your name on it. And God will do everything it takes to get you there. And he says, as often as you drink of this cup and eat of this bread, you proclaim the Lord's death until what? Until he comes. Until he comes. There's a day coming when we won't need these symbols. We'll have the full reality for God will be there and we will dwell with him in all of his fullness. If you know Christ, if you're on this pathway, or if you just now have put your faith and trust in Christ because you've recognized the realities, I want to encourage you to take a piece of this bread, take one of the cups, and wait, and we'll partake together. But Spirit of God, even as we receive this invitation to your table, would you help us to respond to anything that we've heard this morning and make an application in our lives? And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Man, if you'll go ahead and serve us.